welcome to another episode of the Religious Studies Project, this week brought to you from a sunny garden of the School of Divinity in Edinburgh. Uh, my name's Christopher Carter. My name's David Robertson, and we are brought to you, as always, with the support of the British Association for the Study of Religions. This week's podcast is entitled Christian Reconstructionism with Michael McVicker. Take it away, Brad and Michael. Hello, this is Brad Stoddard for the Religious Studies Project. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Michael McVicker, Assistant Professor of Religion at Florida State University. His first book, titled Christian Reconstruction, R.J. Rushduni and the American Religious Conservatism, will be published in just a few weeks. Dr. McVicker, welcome to the Religious Studies Project. Thanks for having me, Brad. Today we're going to talk about Christian Reconstruction and Rush Dooney himself. For the sake of listeners who aren't familiar with either, will you introduce both, please? Yeah, uh, R.J. Rush Dooney was a uh, Presbyterian minister and a Calvinist theologian philosopher who developed a, a sort of unique politicized uh, and also social movement uh, within the sort of conservative American fundamentalism and evangelicalism that he called Christian Reconstruction. The basic idea of Christian Reconstruction is that it is a movement that grows out of Rush Dooney's faith that through a literal adherence to Old Testament biblical law, Christians can reconstruct themselves in order to build the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ on earth. Uh, and there's a lot of subtleties to this in the way that it would play out uh, in the sort of vision that Rush Dooney has developed. But the basic idea is that through adherence to all aspects of Old Testament law, not the ceremonial aspects, but to the moral and legal uh adherence to the legal and moral codes of Old Testament law, uh, Christians could, through applying both the disciplinary standards uh, of that law and also what he would eventually develop into the sort of epistemological standards or the way that it helps us understand and interact with the world around us, would allow Christians to develop this sort of social and political project. What this meant for Rush Juni in terms of uh, a, a broader sort of engagement with American evangelicalism and fundamentalism is that he sort of challenged the evangelicals of his day, most notably folks associated with Billy Graham and the neo-evangelical movement, and then later uh, folks associated with the emergence of the religious right, such as Jerry Falwell or Pat Robertson. He challenged them to be not only more politically engaged than they were, but also to see themselves as building the kingdom on earth in the here and now. This led him to make a series of investments, especially in challenging uh, the ability of states to regulate public education, that is to force uh, Christian children to um, to go to you know public high schools and uh, uh, grade schools and those kind of things through compulsory uh, attendance requirements and instead encourage Christians to homeschool their children and in order and he believed that was going to then allow uh, Christians to sort of raise up a godly generation, and over time, uh, the kingdom of God would emerge from these uh, generations of children that were homeschooled. So he developed this sort of project uh, of Christian reconstruction, and over the course of the, the the latter half of the 20th century, he actually gained quite a few followers, some of whom were very prominent uh, evangelical leaders. Uh, some evangelical leaders really disliked his uh, project and tried to criticize and resist it in various ways. 
but the basic idea is that Christian Reconstruction, in some important ways, but limited ways, contributed to what Americans would now think of the the Christian right or the 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 new the new Christian right uh, of the the late seventies and early nineteen eighties. If we attempt to situate Rush Dooney in the broader span of American history or American religious history, what events, themes, etc., precede him? Preceded him. In other words, what made Rush Dooney possible? And if I can piggyback a second question onto that, to what extent did he create Christian Reconstruction, or was he just an important uh, catalyst or figure in a pre-existing movement? Okay, I'll, I'll sort of take those separately. Good. But I'll, I'll start with you know what, what sort of preceded. Uh, Christian Reconstruction, and I, I suppose the the easiest place to begin is the sort of uh, split between fundamentalists and modernists uh, in American Protestantism in the early part of the 20th century. The split between modernists and fundamentalists was a, a key ingredient to Christian Reconstructionism in the sense that Rushduni believed that when he was developing his ideas uh, in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, that he was actually fighting modernism in important ways. Uh, many folks at that time would have thought that the modernist fundamentalist split had already been decided, but Rushduni disagreed with that, and he was following in particular a group of, well, a, a specific theologian in from Westminster Theological Seminary, a man named Cornelius Van Til, who was uh, one of the most vociferous and, in some ways, unique critics of modernism during that period, who developed a school of Christian apologetics known as presuppositionalism. And Rushduni developed presuppositional apologetics and sort of worked it into the political project that would eventually become Christian Reconstructionism. Without getting too much into the details of presuppositionalism, the basic idea is that Van Til argued that Christians can only know the world through the Bible. That is, that assuming that the triune deity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in Christianity must be the foundation or the presupposition of all correct human knowledge, and that we can only come to know this through the revelation of the Bible. Rushduni took that to argue that not only do we have to presume the sort of triune nature of the Christian deity, but that also has to be our foundation to both our political systems and our legal systems, whether it's in the United States or anywhere else. So he carried this idea forward and eventually developed it into what he would call Reconstructionism or theonomy, that is, rule by God's law. So we can situate Reconstructionism is kind of a response to the fundamentalist modernist split. The second part of your question as to did Rushduni is he sort of the father or the uh, the primary innovator of Christian Reconstructionism? The, sh the short answer is yes. Um, there was the movement of presuppositionalism that uh, Rushduni is responding to through Van Til and his students out of Westminster Theological Seminary. So he fits into a much larger sort of reformed Calvinist tradition and also a, a broader sort of Presbyterian milieu in the United States. But the unique project of Reconstructionism, which focuses on the literal application of biblical law onto human beings, is by and large Rush Dooney's sort of pioneering insight here. And he develops that insight through his engagement with Ventilian presuppositional apologetics, but also through his reading of existential philosophy during this period in the 19. 
40s and 50s, and also his sort of engagement with the problem of the federal state during this period. He begins to see the federal state, uh, the United States federal government, as this kind of overweening bureaucracy that's trying to strip human beings of their God-given sovereignty in politics, and instead is trying to gobble up all of those uh, uh, aspects where human beings should be governing themselves and taking over sort of human subjectivity. So he wants to free people from the state, and he believes he can do that by using biblical law as a model for self-governance. So those are the sort of two complex strands of what goes into making uh, Reconstructionism, sort of the pre-existing fundamentalist modernist split in American Christianity, and then Rushdie's own engagement with that debate and what's going on in the sort of post-World War II period with the emergence of, you know, sort of massive command and control economies and the, the rise of bureaucratic state in the United States. Rushdie died in 2001 and left his office intact. And then several years later, you had unrestricted access to his office. So one, how did you come to have access to his office? And two, what did you learn about the man? Specifically, you got access to his private diaries and whatnot. And you learned interesting things about his private life as well. Uh, so what did you come to learn about the man behind the man? And I'm using air quotes here for him. Good question. I think I should back up and just say a little bit about why I started looking at Rushdie, because Rushdie was a figure that keeps popping up in a lot of stories and histories of the sort of rise of the religious right and its influence from the 80s into the early 2000s. And as I started to, to look at a lot of work where Rushdie's name kept coming up, I was surprised that there didn't seem to be any substantial historical research into this guy. There was a sort of generic consensus in a lot of the major histories of the field, or a lot of the, the, the uh, consensus in um, a lot of the studies of the rise of the religious right, that Rush Dooney and Christian Reconstructionism was an important movement. But yet I wasn't seeing a lot of in-depth historical research into uh, why he mattered and what he really contributed. So I started to look into his work and I realized that he did have a substantial influence on homeschooling and the processes by which that became legal in the United States. He was also very important for a lot of legal activism for folks that were engaged in not only creating spaces for homeschooling, but also carving out spaces for parents to you know, have all kinds of exemptions for the way that they would protect their children from the state and a handful of other things. So he was doing a lot of this interesting sort of behind-the-scenes organizing. And it dawned on me that nobody had really done any in-depth archival research based on this guy's sort of life and times. Instead, they're only citing his personal writings, which are voluminous. I think he wrote, you know, well over 50 books during his lifetime, thousands of essays, you know, hundreds of book chapters and things like this. So I really wanted to see what this man's influence really was. And so what I did is in the, uh, the early 2000s, I began sort of negotiating with his what was essentially sort of a one-man think tank that he ran called the, the Chalcedon Foundation. It's kind of a, I guess I'm not being fair to say it's a one-man organization, but he was really the, the sort of brains behind it. He had a lot of employees and a lot of volunteers that worked with it. But I figured that if I could get access to his papers at the, at the Chalcedon Foundation, which is in this little town, Vallecito, in, in California, a few hours uh, south of uh, uh, Sacramento, uh, California, I figured if I could get access to that, I might actually be able to situate this guy within the context of not only the religious right and, you know, this 
uh, sort of political milieu of American evangelicalism, but I might actually be able to situate him in the larger story of uh, 20th century religious history in the United States. So I began negotiating with Cal Seton, which is currently run now by uh, Rushdoony's son, Mark Rushdoony, talking to several of the folks involved and volunteering with and working with uh, uh, the foundation. And over time, I gained a little bit of trust uh, and, and, and support from them. But they still were nervous that I might be, you know, coming in to do a sort of uh, uh, smear job on, on Rushdoony and were really reluctant to let me see his personal correspondence and his diaries and all of these other things. And so what I did is over time, I allowed them to look at what I was writing, the research that I was doing, and let them see a sort of small journalistic piece that I wrote on Rushdoony. And when they were satisfied that I actually intended to do a fair sort of write-up on the man and to treat his ideas fairly and to not argue that, you know, he was some kind of dangerous theocrat who was trying to take over the American government or something like that. They agreed to let me in. And when they did, I got access to not simply his correspondence, but also to his very personal diaries and to his sort of notes and all of this stuff that he had kept for, you know, decades while he was doing his research and his legal activism and, and all of this stuff. And in terms of what did I find, essentially I found a massive uncatalogued archive of this man's personal life. And it was, it was kind of overwhelming to go through all of this material. And I had to deal with uh, organizing both his correspondence, but also his diaries and also his personal notes uh, about, you know, everything that he was reading and writing and, and all of this uh, uh, sort of personal data uh, of this guy's life. It led to a lot of really interesting insights. I, uh, I got to see how he worked with his followers, the kind of uh, ways he engaged with his family, and a lot of, a, a lot of material that I simply can't put into the book uh, in, in, terms of his, uh, uh, in terms of his personal life. But I also got to see exactly how much of an influence he had on the rise of things like the religious right, the moral majority, the Rutherford Institute, a handful of really important think tanks, legal advocacy firms, public defense uh, uh, legal firms that developed in the 1980s. I, I got to see his influence here, and it did reveal a sort of uh, network of relationships that simply had not been covered in the history before. And that was a, um, well, in some ways it was a godsend in order to be able to write this history. From previous conversations, you mentioned that you had a rather sophisticated technique for documenting his literature, or his, his, his diaries and whatnot, uh, and, and yes, I'm being sarcastic. Uh, would you like to describe briefly how you interacted with this material? Uh, well, what I did is I went in and uh, with a digital camera and just took <laughs> pictures of everything. I, I, the last count, I probably had, well, I, I don't even know. I'd, I'd have, to, I'd have to, to, to add it up, but thousands upon thousands of digital image, images of Rushdoony's correspondence, his diaries, and all of this other material. Uh, some of it is very rigorously cataloged. That is, I, I rigorously cataloged it. Some of it is just, you know, files that I've either printed out or I've got stored on hard drives uh, all over uh, bunches of computers and hard drives and, and, and things like that. So it, it was a... Uh, it was sort of a, a labor of love to put all of that together. I didn't have the benefit in the sense of having state archives or private archives that have been right. cataloged by uh, by researchers previously or by librarians, and that that posed a, a certain level of challenge. It also gave me a lot of freedom to do to do research that uh, um, maybe the dream of, of historians just a kind of untapped archive to walk into and, and, and to sift through. Excellent, thank you. 
You've talked about this a little bit, but um, just if you could bullet point for us, what were Rushduni's primary goals? Who were his enemies? What were his primary goals? And what were the what were the goal of uh, people? What were the goals of people who followed him, the Reconstructionists? Okay, uh, in terms of Rushduni's uh, goals, his goal is to build the kingdom of God on earth. Um, he is going to do this, and if I'm going to bullet point this through uh, the application of biblical law uh, onto first all Christians. And he had a very narrow understanding of what a Christian was. It was a you know orthodox, normally reformed or Presbyterian-minded Christian who, over time, is going to first take control over uh, their family. And when I say Christian here, I'm really talking about male Christians. That is, fathers who are going to take control of their family. They are going to take control of their family by applying the strictures of biblical law onto first themselves, the, the male agent, then onto their wives, then onto their children. Rashtuni's idea was that over time this would create sort of interlocking networks of godly families that would eventually sort of swell to fill the earth and to create the kingdom of God on earth. Now, in terms of what he believed he was reconstructing, reconstructing human beings in response to, it was basically modernist secularism. So he believed that uh, his primary enemy was the state, the state being a, and I use state here in the most generic broad sense, the, basically the modernist state was taking Christians uh, and all human beings, uh, stripping them of their God-given sovereignty and agency, chaining them, making them prisoners to sort of the welfare state in really interesting and complex ways, and that Christians needed to reinsert their, reassert their sovereignty of self. So it's a kind of libertarian project in some ways. He understood himself to be libertarian very much in a kind of old uh, liberal model of basically sovereign, autonomous actors operating the world free of state intervention in their daily lives. So it's both an economic argument but also a political argument that he's engaging in here. And he believed that Christianity provided, uh, particularly Christianity as it is filtered through biblical law, provided the mechanisms to allow people to be these sovereign autonomous agents. So his primary enemy here is not only the state, but it's also uh, secularism in any form, any kind of uh, any kind of non-Christian religious ideology that would suggest that human beings are not slaves first to God. Any way in which you undermine that relationship where we are somehow biologically and intellectually bound to Jesus Christ is for Rushduni uh, a form of paganism. And there's different forms of paganism, but that's primarily the intervention here. So he believed he was intervening here and undermining the power of the state, freeing human beings uh, from this sort of intervention and allowing them to be totally free uh almost libertarian sort of subjects uh, in this context. And he preaches this sort of gospel to folks on the, the sort of, uh, um, in the American conservative movement, but also to libertarians, uh, to more conservative Presbyterians, but also to receptive Baptists and charismatic Christians in the United States. And it finds very small, but sort of willing and receptive audiences within each one of these communities. And they are primarily responsible for driving a certain view of Christian homeschooling in the United States uh, and a handful of other sort of social movements that are related to that. As I read your book, 
Rushduni is important not because his dream was ever realized. Uh, he's been dead 15, 14 years. Clearly, we're not run as as the with the, with the theological vision that he has. So his vision was never implemented. But as I read your book, what's important is the centrifugal force that he uh, that he exerted over certain movements. So you mentioned homeschooling, but can you explain a little bit more about that? How did he pull uh, larger movements toward his vision? If that's if I'm framing it correctly, yeah, that, that's exactly right. Uh, in some ways, you know, Rushduni's bigger goal of imposing a theocracy on the United States, or more rightly, uh, sort of imposing a theocracy through generations of godly rule. Rushduni is a postmillennialist. He believes that this could take thousands of generations. So his model is a, a long-term sort of gradualist strategy of Christian reconstruction or this theonomic reconstruction of human agency. Within that context, then. You know, as you point out quite rightly, this goal was never achieved. Uh, even the kind of energy of the religious right uh, during the 80s is never really, you know, achieved. You know, abortion is still legal. Uh, prayer in public schools is not legal. Homeschooling is still seen as a kind of minor, uh, especially Christian homeschooling is still seen as a kind of minor social movement in the United States. So it's a very, it's a very limited movement in terms of the, the actual organizational success that Reconstructionism has. But with that in mind, the importance of this is that he challenged Christians to do a lot of things that they may not otherwise have done without this vision of Christian Reconstruction. Most notably, Rushduni challenged a lot of pre-millennial Christians with his post-millennial vision. And this is most obvious with the ways in which he influenced important American televangelists like Pat Robertson. Pat Robertson, by the late 1980s, has read a lot of, re of Rush Juni's uh, writings, has read a lot of other Reconstructionist writings. Rush Juni is certainly not the only people producing these ideas, but he's the most sort of significant in some ways. Robertson adopts a lot of these themes and will eventually start talking in terms that sound more post-millennial than pre-millennial. So that's a very subtle influence that Rush Juni has. Pat Robertson never abandons premillennialism, but he accepts some of Rushduni's rhetoric, particularly the idea of Christians imposing dominion on other people, the idea that Christians should rule in some kind of sense. The other thing that Rushduni has an important influence on in during this period from, from the 80s moving forward is that he challenges a lot of Christians to think in legal terms. Because of, it, of his emphasis on biblical law, he challenges a lot of Christians to engage in legal activism in ways that they previously had not done. And here he is sort of instrumental in setting up or creating a context in which some of the major Christian public defense advocacy firms begin to develop in the late 70s, moving into the 80s, some of them associated with homeschooling, uh, but probably the most important here is his influence on the emergence or the development of uh, the Rutherford Institute, which is a public legal advocacy firm uh, that's involved in a lot of free speech uh, issues, also is involved in the, uh, the homeschooling movement, and eventually is most notable for pushing Paula Jones's uh, legal case against Bill Clinton during the 90s under the leadership of uh, John Whitehead, who runs the, uh, 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 the Rutherford Institute. So Rushduni is really instrumental in pushing a lot of evangelicals into an engagement with popular culture that may or may not have happened without Christian Reconstructionism. Uh, arguably it would have, but nonetheless he was an important sort of force uh, in, in, in these developments. 
How is Rashtuni, or more specifically Christian Reconstructionism more broadly, how is it relevant in, in American politics today? Who's carried on his legacy and agenda? <laughs> this, is a, this is a contentious issue. You can find uh, a lot of critics of Reconstructionism arguing that, for instance, during the last election cycle, that Texas Governor Rick Perry or Representative, uh, Congressional Representative Michelle Bachman were Reconstructionists who were pushing a kind of uh, what kind of Russian light uh, social and political agenda that really couldn't be farther from the case. Uh, it's much more complex than that. These folks might have been influenced by some Reconstructionist ideas somewhere. I'm not clear on this, but this has been the argument. You also find some folks who will argue that the, Re the Republican Party more broadly has been influenced by the kind of theocratic agenda, especially after the Bush administration. Again, this is there's very little empirical evidence for this. Uh, instead, it's probably best to see Rushduni as having a kind of diffuse influence on very conservative church polities uh, at a local level, particularly reformed. Uh, communities in sort of the splinter uh, denominations of American Presbyterianism, the most conservative denominations there, like the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. There has been some lingering uh, influence of Rushduni and his ideas there. Also, the homeschooling movement, especially the conservative Christian side of it, to this day is suffused with Reconstructionist ideas. A lot of the curriculum there is actually rooted in Rushduni's writings, uh, and if they don't read Rushduni directly, they tend to be reading works that were produced by folks influenced directly by Rushduni's view of history and his view of apologetics. Another important area is Rushduni's view of the sort of patriarchal family unit that is essential to understanding the project of Christian Reconstruction, the idea of a sovereign male father figure and a submissive wife or helpmeet, as Rushduni would uh, uh, call the wife in that relationship, uh, and the children that were going to carry on the, the Reconstructionist agenda in future generations. This has been most clearly seen in the courtship culture in American evangelicalism and also in the development of what is known as quiverful uh, Christianity, the idea of having large families for Jesus, uh, for, for you know, a godly purpose. Rushdie had a direct uh, influence on those those Christian movements. Um, so it's really difficult to say he has a direct political influence on any particular politician or any particular party, but he has had an indirect influence on a lot of very conservative Presbyterian and Reform-minded uh, Christians. What do you see as the future of Reconstructionism? Arguably, Reconstructionism itself is a movement that is... I hesitate to say dead, but it is a movement that no longer has a robust sort of organizational structure. Uh, as we've talked today, I haven't gotten into uh, a lot of the organizations that emerged uh, around Rushdie during the uh, 70s and 80s and into the 90s, but the Chalcedon Foundation, which was Rushdie's own organization, had a bunch of satellite organizations. There were tape ministries, there were economic think tanks, through the work of his son-in-law, a man named Gary North, there was the Institute of Christian Economics that was very influential for a time and was in some ways really important for pushing the whole Y2K or uh, year 2000 computer glitch sort of uh, disaster 
theory that uh, a, a lot of um, conservative uh, evangelicals were concerned about right around the, the turn of the century. There were a bunch of organizations that Rushdie was sort of associated with during this period. Most of those have either sort of shuttered after uh, the turn of the millennium, or uh, if they still exist, sort of exist in a much diminished form. Uh, the Chalcedon Foundation itself has a sort of limited influence, uh, mostly involved with publishing Russianese back catalog and make sure, making sure it stays in print. So it's, in terms of its organizational structure, it's probably going to have a very limited lifespan. The wider intellectual sort of movement that Russianese developed will likely have legs, uh, especially in the form of Christian homeschooling, but also in terms of the development of theonomy, presuppositional apologetics, and just the broader project of Christian Reconstructionism. It's likely to be read about and studied in conservative seminaries, uh, conservative Christian uh, colleges, and in law schools that have, uh, that either are in Christian institutions or that are associated with them. So, the the influence is probably going to be very subtle, very diffuse, but it will probably linger for quite some time. And one book in particular, if I'm correct, stands out among his other work. Yeah, uh, good point. It's kind of sad that it's taken me this long to get to it. Uh, the uh, the Institutes of Biblical Law, which Rushdie published in 1973, it's his most influential book. He eventually developed it into a three-volume work, but the first volume, published in 1973, is the most influential and in this book, uh, as the name implies, he is arguing that biblical law should be the basis for all human relationships and for the administration and governance of human beings. Correct me if I'm wrong, but he's giving, even as the title of the book suggests, this is a clear shout out to Calvin. Yes, absolutely. Uh, this, this shows his reformed, his Calvinist background. Uh, the idea here is he's putting himself directly in conversation with Calvin and sees himself as continuing this, you know, sort of uh, Protestant Calvinist legacy into the 20th century. And that work is still widely cited and widely circulated in conservative Calvinist circles in the United States today. It has been translated into multiple languages by the Chalcedon Foundation. They work hard to make sure that this work is available uh, widely or as widely as it can be. You'll find it in a lot of academic libraries, but also uh, in a lot of uh, smaller you know, Christian college libraries and other institutions like that. So this is his seminal work, and it's his most important work. For my final question, I'd like to move away from the book itself and talk about the process that led to the publication of this book. This is, this is a, a reworked version of your dissertation. So since many of the Religious Studies Project's li listeners are graduate students or early career scholars who are either about to transition their dissertation into a book or are still writing it in the process thereof. Can you give us a little insight about that process? What did you experience? What was the process like taking this dissertation? And now, you know, in a couple of weeks, uh, it's, it's a book coming out. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's, uh, um, I guess, a, a, a fun question or it's a, it's a good question. Uh, the, um, for me, the process of turning this into a book was actually a very slow process. I finished the dissertation in 2010 and essentially sat on the thing for about two years. I had no intention of doing much of anything with it. Kept toying with the idea that I would, you know, generate a book proposal and, and, and send it into various presses and, and things like that. But uh, I wasn't really sure what to do with it. And I sort of 
got lucky uh, in the sense that uh, another much more senior scholar sent me an email out of the blue one day and said, hey, I would like to see your dissertation because I'm, I'm working on something related to religious, you know, uh, evangelic, conservative evangelicals. I sent it along and she sent back very encouraging words. And that kind of prompted me to actually start the process uh, of doing it. So the gap from dissertation uh, to book uh, actually took less time than you would think in terms of just the sheer writing uh, and revision of the project. I, I started uh, rewriting and generating the book proposal in, I think, 2012, and uh, sent it off to several presses, uh, one of which was North Carolina, uh, University of North Carolina Press. And uh, all of them showed some degree of interest, but not much. Uh, and UNC uh, showed the most interest uh, initially. And so as I began to sort of negotiate what the project would look like with the uh, with the editor, uh, she was uh, very, very supportive of the project. And uh, it was a sort of whirlwind transition. Uh, I went from having a dissertation with absolutely no revisions to a revised first draft of a book manuscript in about three months. Reviewer comments came back very quickly, and then I rewrote the entire thing uh, in about a year and a half, uh, and then went through the second round of editor comments and reviewer comments, and then rewrote again. So it was, a, it was actually a very sort of compressed process and, and relatively efficient. Of course, the press was, was, was wonderful to work with. Well, the hard work paid off. It's a fantastic book, and I can't recommend it enough. And uh, thank you for sharing your time with me today. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Well, thanks so much for that, Brad. Um, three excellent interviews for us this semester. I'll say semester. Um, we don't really work with a semester system on the Religious Studies Project, but, um, you know, we do a long academic year with a break for Christmas, let's put it that way. Yeah. Um, so that was the, the sort of post-Christmas semester, if you will. Um, our, our podcast is also brought to you in association with Scottish Boiled Sweets. Um, <laughs> I, I am I'm still uh, finishing off one at the moment. And part of my birthday present, that was very nice. They are too. Exactly. Double response this week. Yeah. Daniel Suleiman, I saw that name. A good friend of ours. That would yeah. be interesting. The second one was? Uh, Dave McConaughey. Oh, another good friend of ours. Excellent. Um, not Matthew McConaughey, just in case. Yeah. Anyone is wondering. But um, his more sort of articulate... Um, sibling. Indeed. Although, you know, I haven't seen Dave given the opportunity to give a impassioned performance. So, you know, he might have it in him. Who are we to say? Well, he's certainly got it in him podcasting-wise and uh, response-wise. Um, next week, um, it is an interview that, uh, well, Tommy set up for us. Um, uh, Tommy Everthy. He's going to be taking away my title of network guy, you know, like Tommy's just got his finger in all the pies. Yes, um, he does. Yeah. So it's Alex Ustavinas um, interviewing Julie Exline on uh, religious and spiritual struggles. Um, Interesting. So that should be good. Um, I think at this point uh, we don't quite know who the response is going to be to that, so I'll just, you know... Yeah, don't wait say and anything. See, <laughs> wait and see what Kevin does there. Um but interesting, interesting to have after we've had a lot of uh, work on uh, sort of constructionism, as we put it last week, to have a, a few the, the more Christian-centric American kind of um, view on things here for the end of the season. We've had quite a lot on sort of Buddhism and these yeah. kind of things, which we don't we don't we haven't done every year, but we did this year, which is good. Absolutely, yeah. Um, before you know, it's not 
touching wood here. That that's maybe is that a religious practice, a superstitious practice, a spiritual? Oh. Practice? What's the difference? I don't know. Um, I, I, well, we could get into that. Uh, but touch wood uh, it hasn't started to rain yet. Um, but we better yeah. uh, wrap up quickly. Okay. So come back next week when we'll be discussing whether touching wood is religious practice. Um, in the meantime. Uh, we come back for the responses on Thursday, as we've said. It's probably going to be one on Friday as well. Is that, uh-huh. is that what we do? Um, the Ops Digest on Tuesday. Um, follow us on Facebook, on Google+, on Twitter. Use our Amazon.co.com and .ca links. Um, give us a rating on iTunes if you use our stuff. Check out the BASR's uh, site, especially if you haven't registered for the conference this year, which you should have by now. 15th of June is the uh, deadline to get your uh, abstracts in. So that's one week after this podcast. Yes, one week. So you've got another week to think about what is your paper going to be. Um, I know I still need to make that decision, but I'm going to. Other than that, Chris, thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.